Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by WW. I'm not hearing anything. Bill, are you there? I, I'm here. We kind of lost the uh, intro. Okay. Well, yeah, it seems to have reset. Well, in that case, uh, let me remind our listeners that what you hear on this broadcast is not a, an acceptable substitute for a legal opinion from an attorney licensed in your jurisdiction, get a lawyer. These are my opinions, and although I'm convinced they're correct, that doesn't mean a court will find them correct, even if I am right. There's a difference between substantive law, where you can say this is right and this is wrong, and procedural law, where you have to play by the rules in order to get there. And that's why you need an attorney or at least an attorney to consult with. Getting the substance requires uh, investigation and analysis, which is what I do, Bill Padalo does, etc. All right, so let's start the show. So this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, March 7, 2019. Bill Padalo joins me tonight since he has done so much work on this topic as a very capable private investigator. He'll share his work with you in a moment. Bill Padalo and others have been working hard over the years, many years, digging deeper and deeper into the trench that the banks have created in which the stench of corruption boils over into the fraudulent taking of homesteads across the country. They, actually, and there were others besides the ones I have in mind, uh, kept pointing me toward a simple conclusion, but I resisted because I overlooked that part of a lawyer's work that means you start at the beginning. If I had listened to Bill and others, I would have seen it earlier. I didn't look word by word for the name of the claimant. And everything they were telling me fit with almost an instruction to look closely at that. Once I did look at it, everything became more simplified. Everything became clearer. And I'm going to share that with you tonight. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and the show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you, all of you who have been contributing, especially lately. And for those who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog 
or call 954-451-1230 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog and our radio shows, which all occurs without any payment, consideration, or support, if that has value to you, then please chip in. We want to keep helping you, and we want to keep developing our, our, our database. Please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. And I've been told by some that there is a problem with the donation link that is off again on again. I have called PayPal and looked into it, and the general conclusion, I don't know if they're right, is that it's a browser problem. So if you have a problem making the donation, please go to another browser, go to the Living Lies blog, and then hit the, the donate button. Bill has been telling me, Dan Edstrom told me, uh, and, and even Charles Kappa uh, was trying to tie me in my thinking into the... Uh, the, the claimant uh, in whose name foreclosure is, is brought and I just didn't put it together I didn't hear and that's part of the problem of getting lawyers to represent homeowners who are being wrongfully foreclosed neither lawyers nor judges actually hear or believe a defense that is a complete defense to the claim brought in the name of a false claimant. Nearly everyone agrees to a false premise that the debt was not paid and that the homeowner owes the debt to the claimant who is named in the foreclosure action. Not true. Legal standing is about whether the named claimant, that's who's in court, there's a name that's been put forward as a claimant, and it's a false claimant if it doesn't exist or it doesn't have the claim. So legal standing is about whether the named claimant exists and will, if successful, and this ties into Bill's work, that that named claimant will if successful, receive the benefits of prevailing on its claim. If that is not true, there is no valid claim. If they don't get the money from the sale of the property, then there was no valid claim. We now have substantial evidence that this basic proposition is not true, except in cases where the original lender was the lender and is still the lender. This simple proposition is what is missing from today's debate over foreclosures. It turns out that the named claimants are not receiving checks or wire transfers. They're not receiving money when the property is liquidated. And yes, that does matter because if they do not receive the money, it is because they were never intended to receive the money. And in that case, they had not experienced a default. And if they had no default, then they had no right to declare a default. And if they had no right to declare a default, there is no default 
as to that name of that supposed claimant. So bottom line, there is no default as to a claimant who either does not exist or who is not intended to receive the benefits of any remedy for that default. Why do we have this issue? The answer is obvious, money. For every dollar alone, there are 10 to $20 in gain for the players. Now, it's under a lot of different categories and so forth, but that's what's happening. Those players who are never present in your foreclosure case, they are pulling the strings, and their only goal is to prevent that $20 gain on each dollar that they loaned you from becoming a $20 liability. And that way they can kill they can keep their ill gotten gains. The fact is that the, the debt as funded by the original investment banker was paid by the sale and resale and resale of the same debt. If your attack on their proof reveals gaps in the chain of ownership of the debt, that undermines the value of the paper. If the paper is undermined, then the derivatives, credit default swaps, and other paper created for the so-called securitization era, that paper may be worthless or at least worth much less than they paid. And if that happens, then the investment bank that started it all has a liability for all the money it made and their affiliates, 10 to 20 times the amount of each loan. Foreclosure plays a vital role in maintaining the illusion that the loans and, deriv and the derivatives that were written off of those loans were all valid and legal. They were not. After 12 years of thinking and analysis, I boiled everything down to one question. Does the party named by the lawyers ever get anything out of a successful foreclosure? I've come to the conclusion that the answer is always no if the loan had been sold into the secondary market and worse yet, if it has been subject to securitization claims, which are almost always completely false. If the lawyers have given a name of an implied entity that does not exist, the answer is obvious. But sometimes you need to parse their words to even discover that they are naming a party that does not exist. If the lawyers name a legally existing entity, then the question is whether that is the entity who will actually receive the benefit of foreclosure. Again, the answer, if you parse the words used by the lawyers, is no. They probably are not naming a legal entity, even though they incorporate legal entities in the, uh, the word description of the claimant. And whoever it is they named as claimant will never see the use or proceeds of the foreclosed property. And then you have the hybrid like uh, uh, that I made reference to a moment ago, like Deutsch or U.S. Bank or Boney Mellon as trustee for this jumble of words that it often includes the word trust 
or certificate or holders of certificates. It implies but does not identify a trust and refers to certificate holders without identifying the certificates. And as Bill has pointed out on several programs before, those certificates in all event and the prospectus disclaim any interest in the subject debt, note, or mortgage. The certificates convey to the holders any right to the debt, note, or mortgage. The holders merely receive a promise that they will receive a stream of money indefinitely. They are not promised the principal amount of any debt. They are not promised the interest paid by the borrower. Because the certificates disclaim the interest, the borrower does not owe the investors in so-called mortgage-backed securities anything. They don't owe them anything. And by the way, those securities are not securities under the 1998 amendment to the Act, and they're not mortgage-backed either for the reasons that I've already just stated. Bottom line, if the lawyers know that the name they are using for the claimant is a fictitious entity or is an entity that has never received the proceeds of foreclosure in the past, then they know that the foreclosure is invalid and probably fraudulent. But they do it anyway because they can, and they get away with it until challenged aggressively by the very rare homeowner who says, hell no, I won't go. If a third party is getting the benefit of the foreclosure, that is an admission that the named claimant used by the lawyers in the foreclosure and the lawyers from the foreclosure mill therefore did not satisfy the requirement of Article Three legal standing under the U.S. Constitution. That claimant does not satisfy the state requirements to be a beneficiary on a deed of trust or a mortgagee on a mortgage. The fact that they received an assignment does not create the ownership of the debt, nor the right to enforce it if the debt is not owned by the claimant whose name is being used to seek the remedy of foreclosure when there is no expectation that the named claimant will actually receive the proceeds of sale when the property is foreclosed. <clears throat> that named party or claimant does not have a claim and doesn't expect to receive the benefit of the remedy for which the lawyers have applied in their name if the entity even exists. Welcome to the show, Bill Padalo. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me again. Excellent, excellent points. Um, obviously, we've been doing this for so long now that uh, you know the evidence is very clear that, uh, yes, these are uh, illegitimate, non-existent entities that they're putting forth as the claimants, and the the admissions that we have, the evidence that we've compiled, it's crystal clear that there's no accounting, verifiable accounting trail in the chain of title to who's entitled to the debt and uh, even who uh, is entitled <clears throat> to receive the proceeds, for example, upon a liquidation in the foreclosure sale. And uh, I mentioned this and I, I, I can't 
speak to the case specifically, but I've got witness testimony and deposition uh, from a case where the three interested big named uh, uh, parties, when asked directly uh, if this home continues uh, through the foreclosure process and is liquidated, uh, who's entitled to the liquidation proceeds? And the and the witnesses flat up said, "I don't know." And when asked, "How could you? Can you find out?" I don't know. They they flat out admit that they 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 can't explain that. But when you've been fighting this stuff for as long as as we have, um, eventually, again, gold nuggets do show up in the in the pan, so to speak. And there's a, a case that I'm aware of and. Uh, involved in, I should say, in uh, Colorado, where the foreclosure sale occurred and the claimant in that was Bank of New York Mellon as trustee for uh, Countrywide Trust. And they proceeded and carried out the sale where the trustee then issued a check to the, uh, that, from the proceeds that was received uh, for nearly a quarter million dollars. And that check was made out to the Bank of New York Mellon. What's very unusual is that uh, my client was able to obtain a copy of that check after it had been presented and cashed. And on the back of that check, now, I, when, I, when I'm describing this, I'm not accusing anybody of fraud here or anything of these names. All I'm simply saying is, and I'll let the listeners decide, is that there's issues here that need to be explained and delved into, and, we, and, and we're currently in the process of doing that. But anyhow, the check is made out to Bank of New York Mellon, but on the back of the check, there's a direct endorsement from Bayview Loan Servicing to J.P. Morgan Chase. So the, the payee, the named payee, Bank of New York Mellon, does not have any uh, or did not endorse the back of that check. It was It was cashed. Uh, it appears, uh, at a J.P. Morgan Chase bank. Now, what's interesting is those parties that endorse the back of the check are nowhere to be found anywhere in the uh, legal filings or the um, uh, chain of title or any, anything of that nature. They're total mystery uh, entities who appear to have ran off with the money. So uh, that jibes and is very consistent with data that I look into when I go into my uh, securitization database where I'm looking at the remittance reports monthly on any of these securitized trusts when they claim that the loan was sold uh, and liquidated and uh, the payment that obviously they would receive at the foreclosure auction or whatever at some point in time should be reported to the investors. And most often, and a lot of I, I look at this data, and, and none of these uh, payments, for example, show up in any of the internal uh, accounting. So, for example, even in this case, with the uh, check that was punched, and uh, you know, it must be nice to be a big bank because I guess you know you don't have to scrutinize anything; you can cash anything uh, if you're the bank. But uh, uh, that transaction is, has yet uh, to have ever appeared months and months and months after that sale uh, in, in, the, in the internal data. So we know that there's a lot of those shenanigans going on. Now, where I think he hit the nail on the head here, uh, where I think this is going, Neil, is that <clears throat> it's with the lawyers. I think the, the thing that's propping this house of cards up and continues to do so, I mean, obviously, 
you know, the, the Department of Justice, FBI, and law enforcement's not kicking in the doors of, of any of these places, and that doesn't appear they're going to be doing that anytime soon. So what keeps it going is that in a judicial state such as Florida, uh, when these parties file, a, when any of these entities file a complaint, they have to be represented by a, uh, an attorney. Uh, corporations have to have representation by attorney. And even if you were in a non-judicial state and you wanted to take some sort of preemptive action or challenge or file a suit against any of these entities, again, if they appear and answer or defend, they, again, must be represented by counsel. But the fact is, as we all know, that these claimants and these parties are uh, they're not they are not even real. There's so much evidence to show that they're all fake. And so what we've known for a long time is that the real party who is paying the attorneys or whatnot are the servicers, and they try to get away with the, uh, the old attorney in fact or so on and so forth. But I think the pressure is going to be is, – is boiling to the point now where the law firms that are coming in, the lawyers whose licenses are on the line, who continue to repeatedly come in and uh, claim to represent these false entities and get away with it, if they're put on notice and, and they continue to uh, represent or claim to represent without doing any due diligence that this alleged client is even real, I think there's a tremendous amount of liability there. And what I'm seeing now from some parties that are pushing back on that and then starting to put the, the lawyers in their sights to attack them on this issue, gee, it's amazing how many just kind of the, the lawyers just kind of uh, uh, remove themselves from the case and then and the, uh, they move it on to another lawyer. They're just they're, it's a revolving door of resignations and walking away because uh, I, I think they don't want to go anywhere near the threat of losing their license. What do you think on that one? I, th I think you just hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> I think that these lawyers are going to have license issues. I think many of them are going to end up losing their licenses, and I think they're going to have civil liability as well. There are more suits now, as far as I've been able to see, and I see a lot, so I'm able to keep my, my thumb on the pulse of what's going on. There are more suits now than ever before brought by homeowners against the foreclosure mills. And most of them are happening after the homeowners have won the primary foreclosure case. And what they're alleging, and I'm involved in some of them, what they're alleging is basically that before the suit was filed, the law firm, as you just stated, knew damn well that the party that they were going to name as the claimant in the foreclosure, either as a mortgagee, supposedly, or assignee, uh, uh, or as a beneficiary under the deed of trust, that that party either didn't exist, or even if it did exist, never owned the debt, and they knew, because they had to know, that that party wasn't getting a nickel out of the, for, the proceeds of the foreclosure. So I'm 100% convinced 
that the named party in foreclosures is named for the express purpose of protecting other parties from being held liable for fraudulent conduct, representations, etc., and illegal schemes like what has been called for more than 12 years now a, a, a Ponzi scheme. I think that people need to realize, as I am realizing or appreciating more and more every time I get into this, that banks need the foreclosure for their Ponzi scheme that they called securitization, which Adam Levitin has called securitization fail. I simply say that securitization never happened because what what in truth was happening is that the investment bank was using a fake trust name uh, as a fictitious name and that everything that was issued, the certificates and all that stuff, um, and, and the loans were done in, in the names of other parties uh, simply to keep the investment bank from being the apparent real party in interest. And as soon as the, and sometimes before the loan even occurred, the investment bank was, was selling the data on each loan to dozens of other parties in one form or another. And these parties believe that they have an interest in each mortgage when, in fact, they don't. So the the banks don't need the the foreclosure for payment from the borrower, that's an afterthought. They've already been paid 10 or 20 times. What they need the foreclosure for is to support the Ponzi scheme. They have to create the illusion, they have to maintain the illusion that securitization was real, even though it is very apparent that it wasn't. And if it was real, consider this, folks. If it was real, they never would have had to resort to institutional fabrication of documents, institutional forgeries, institutional robo-signing. That would have never happened if the securitization deals were real. And often what you'll see is that the actual money and I've confirmed this with insiders, goes in part, well, goes through the master servicer described in the pooling and servicing agreement, who keeps a big chunk under the guise of recovery of servicer advances, which represent payments made to investors even though there was no income from uh, borrowers. And those servicer advances have themselves been securitized. But here's the issue. In the prospectus, this is not some opinion. 
in the prospectus, it says that the service or advances are going to come from money advanced by the investors who bought the certificates. So the whole thing is a scheme. And now everybody is kind of wedded to it. Not everybody. Obviously, Bill and I are not. But the players in the, in the financial industry are wedded to this because if the truth is exposed, then their whole scheme crashes. And that was the decision of George W. Bush to let it crash until until Hank Paulson literally went down on his knees and begged him, telling him that the world would end if he did not prop up the scheme. And reluctantly, George W. Bush agreed, and of course, Obama followed suit, and apparently Trump is continuing the same policy. Thank you, Bill, for appearing on the show. We'll be back next week. And uh, uh, I think you and Charles are doing next week. Thanks, everybody, and good night. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.